So then what do you say to somebody who says, but I have to apply, I have to start law school this cycle, I have to start law school this fall? I say to them, why? I'm 27. I don't want to take a gap year. And I say, why? Be patient, be patient, be patient. Hello and welcome to episode 440 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. I'm Nathan Fox. With me is Ben Olson. We're the co-founders of LSATdemon.com and the LSAT Demon Daily podcast. You can be LSAT famous, share news and ask questions on our website, thinkinglsat.com. You can also email a voice recording of your question to help at thinkinglsat.com. Just uh, keep it under 30 seconds and record from a quiet place, please. We've only got one of those, but I loved it. <laughs> and it was so well recorded. I mean, maybe it's going to set a high bar, but I hope more people do. It is a way to skip the line. We get lots of emails asking lots of questions. And if you want to skip the line, use your voice. That is the way to do that. That's a, that, that goes for life in general, huh? That does. Yeah. Pick up the phone. You're going to get, <laughs> if you want to skip the quicker. email, skip the, skip the line, stop <laughs> yeah. fucking emailing. Just, yeah. <laughs> just call someone or show up in person and just be a yeah. pain in the ass. Yeah. Um, Ben, this is not a pain in the ass at all. You're opening your class to everybody for free yep. on February 19th. That's yep. 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. Uh, how do people register for that? They can go to lsatdemon.com forward slash free. They go there and then they can sign up for this class. I'm going to be doing games. lsatdemon.com forward slash free. I'm looking at the syllabus right now. There's yeah. uh, two games that are already on that syllabus, and then there's bonus logical reasoning questions, I guess, if you have uh, more time, huh? Yeah. So exactly. students could get started right now by working on those games ahead of time, and they would be well prepared for your class on February 19th. Of course, they don't yep. have to do that if they don't want to, but they can just show up. 100%. Mm -hmm. Yeah. LSATdemon.com forward slash free. Yep. Uh, is the link to register for all of our upcoming free classes. Okay. Um, later in the show today, we're going to play an interview that I recorded yesterday with Maya Russell. Uh, she is the pre-law advisor at Furman University. She's also the chair of the pre-law advisor national council, which is called Plank. And she's the president of the Southern Association of pre-law advisors, which is called SAPLA. We talked for over an hour. She is a really useful um, I, I can tell that the people who have her as their pre-law advisor are extremely blessed. I know that we've talked mm. a lot of shit about some pre-law advisors or at least some advice that we've heard from pre-law advisors, yes. which yes, goes yes. totally against everything we ever say yeah. on this show, but not so with um, Maya. She was really great. I want to apologize for calling her Maya at the mm. uh, beginning and middle of the podcast. I only figured out that it was Maya at the end of the podcast. But anyway, we'll get around to that later. Uh, first we have this study, LSAT demon student James shared a study from access Lex on application timing among historically underrepresented applicants. We have a link to the full report that'll go in the show notes. I've read it, Ben, you've read it. Producer Eric helpfully wrote a bunch of summary bullet points for us. You want to start though? What did you take away from this, uh, report? from Access Lacks? Well, it, it wasn't super surprising. They basically just said, hey, if you apply later, your chances of getting accepted drop. Yes. They report uh, of the people who were in their study, this is 186 applicants over two years. Yeah. Um, they are a, a different 
group of applicants. Um, part of getting into the program requires a 25th percentile or lower LSAT score. Oh, I didn't catch that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's not like they went out and sampled all law school applicants or even all historically underrepresented applicants. They are studying people who are in the Access Lex program. And to get into the Access Lex program, you have to do certain things, including having a terrible LSAT. Yeah. To get okay. into the program to begin with. Okay. So um, anyway, these particular group of applicants who are underrepresented, and it seems like they genuinely need a lot of help. Among those people, there was a 40% ap uh, acceptance rate for people who applied early or on time, which they're calling before February 1. Yeah, I saw that and I was like, wow, that's a super late date. <laughs> yeah. That said, so, <clears throat> there was a much worse acceptance rate, only 24% acceptance rate for the people who applied on or after February 1. Yeah. So even with they have selected a pretty damn late date in the calendar, I mean, we would never recommend that people apply in January. Yeah. But 40% of these folks at least got in, I guess. It's just acceptance rate, so it's got to just be they got into a school. Yep, exactly. But only 20, so 40% if you applied before February 1, only 24% if you applied after February 1. I wish they would have studied what happens if you apply before December 1st or before yeah. November 1st. But it doesn't, seem like, it doesn't seem like that's something that they studied. Well, that's <clears throat> this study is wildly skewed, right? Because looking at applicants which, with such low LSAT scores already hobbles their application in a lot of ways. So one other thing they said in this study, right, is that scholarships don't change much. It doesn't matter whether you apply early or late. And it's like, well, yeah, maybe that's because for that cohort of student, you're not going to look at scholarships regardless of when you apply. <laughs> yeah. And they whiffed completely. I mean, my one of my main complaints and Eric agreed when he did his review of this report yeah, is yeah. that they only asked them a binary question. Did you get a scholarship? Did you not get a scholarship? Well, <laughs> wait a second. We know, and it's obvious and they fucking know this too. They have to know this, right? It's not like they can't, they law school scholarships. It's not like full ride or nothing. It's yeah. full ride, half ride, quarter ride, $5,000. Yeah. A little, a little, little pat uh, on the head, <laughs> a little piece of candy to make you feel excited about. Yeah. Just like, Oh, sign up today and you get a, a talk for free tacos, you know? And yeah. it's like, Oh, great. That's a scholarship. You know, yeah. that would, that would count just the same as a full ride in their studies, which renders it completely worthless, especially when we look at how many schools out there are where it's like 85% of the class or 90% of the class is getting some kind of a grant. Anything else you wanted to talk about in this study? Well, I wanted to hear you say more about um, their solution. So their solution seems to be, and we'll get into this a little bit with when I in my interview with Maya um, that'll play mm. later in this show. Yeah. She gave me some promising information, which is that these outreach programs are, she thinks, are shifting toward a 24 month timeline instead of a 12 month timeline. Okay. So okay. the thing that has always killed me about access Lex and all of these programs, like every pipeline program that I've ever seen mm. seems to start with the idea that like, okay, 
You're starting this program now and you're going to apply to law school at the end of the program. Yeah. Yep. And so, and they, they studied it, you know, they did time, what they call timing interventions on some students and they didn't do timing interventions on other students and applicants who did not receive timing intervention applied late 44% of the time, but applicants who did receive timing intervention applied late 23% of the time. So it sounds like you've got, you know, half as many people applying late. But the way that they do it was totally bogus. The way, the way that they did this was, and I can't remember the details exactly, but it was along the lines of, okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to start your, you're starting the program in like May. You're going to do a three month. I think they gave them a Kaplan course for LSAT. Uh, they're giving them a course and the course has a time limit, right? Yep. It's like, this is your time frame for preparing for the LSAT. Yep. And it's just, you know, I, I, we, we try not to mention other prep companies on the podcast, yeah. but but that one is really the worst. And I don't know how they're so mobbed up with all of these, you know, they, they just, they've been around for forever. Yeah. The name but or something. Yeah. They just like, I can't tell you how many students we've had refugees from Kaplan and we've just had to like unpack their brain with all of this bullshit, all these gimmicks that Kaplan gave them that actually hurt their performance. Yeah. We hear it all the time in class. I'm trying to <laughs> unlearn things that I learned. Yeah. And it's nonsensical stuff. It's just like stuff that can't, how does that possibly help you? Really? Yeah. You're going to skim the passage on reading comp and then skim the questions. And then I don't know, just go all back and crazy, read yeah, it again. And then just <laughs> nuts bonkers, like strategies that are clearly like, Oh, it's a, easy to learn. Unfortunately, it doesn't actually help you, but you think you learned something. So great. Yeah. We've done our LSAT program. Yeah. Anyway, they do the LSAT for three months. So yeah. they put them in this course and like schedule their LSAT right away. Ugh. And, and then it's like, so that's the timing intervention is that they're forcing them onto a particular calendar. And so, you know, apparently that does help them to apply earlier and people who apply earlier do have a better chance of getting in. But I think the reality of the situation is that none of these people are getting great offers to go to, to go to law school. Like no. they started with a very poor LSAT. Their class probably didn't help them very much. Then they took the LSAT once. Then they applied right away. And then you're happy that 40% of them got an offer. But those 40% who got any offer, those are going to be terrible offers. No, this is, this is a situation where the intervention could be actually leading to greater harm, right? Because the 24% acceptance rate could have actually been a blessing to a lot of these applicants who should not have gone to school for full price. And this is why I'm extremely, extremely hesitant about all of these pipeline programs, because even though they are, they're very well-meaning, and I, I think I believe everybody when they say that they want a more diverse bar. Sure. Absolutely. I believe you. I totally believe you, Access Lex. I totally believe every single person who's involved in this program. I believe you that you want a more diverse bar. But this program seems like all it does is leads to more applicants right now with people who don't seem like they're probably really ready to apply. And then you're celebrating every time someone gets an offer of admission when we just cringe seeing 
offers of admission that don't come with generous scholarship help. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, they're looking at a metric, right? They're saying, okay, we want to increase access. We want to make more of these folks get accepted. And if that's your metric, then they have succeeded, but it's, <laughs> it's ignoring the bigger picture, which is the cost of law school and the fact that what, I, what's the, what's the U S average. I, we have this information. U S average for what? Uh, Percentage of people who are paying full price, percentage of people who are getting full ride scholarships. Let me hear, look here really quick. Okay. Based on the US average, I just went to lsatdemon.com forward slash tuition. Mm-hmm. 8% of students in the entire legal, uh, was the US law school system, 8% pay no tuition, 19% pay full tuition. So less than a fifth pay full (laughs) tuition. And yet probably everybody in this study, given the demographic that they're looking at and the, uh, the LSAT numbers that they're looking at are paying full price. So they've just, they've just increased this, this uh, 19%. Right. And so then it's like, you know, and there doesn't even have to be anybody nefarious it could just be that a bunch of well-meaning people got together and built something that has nefarious results. hundred percent. But it seems as if these programs, all they really do is just steer people toward borrowing a lifetime worth of money to go to law school. Yeah. Again, exactly as, as you said, Ben, I mean, look, only 40%, but in the best case, only 40% of these people are getting any offer at all. Mm -hmm. Applicants who applied early, still only had a 40% acceptance rate. But if your cohort is only getting a 40% acceptance rate, so 60% aren't even getting in anywhere, despite all your interventions. Yeah. You took them through the whole application process, by the way. Like they wrote a personal statement, they got letters of recommendation, they got their transcripts submitted, they did the full LSAT course, took the test, (laughs) applied to these schools, and only 40% of them get any offer at all then you're thrilled about the 40% who got some offer, but those 40% are the people who are going to pay the most for law school and get the least out of it. Yeah. Now there are always exceptions. And in my interview with Maya, she was quick to point out that, yeah, there are exceptions, which I don't disagree with. And you know, for the, for those people who it worked out really well for them, then Mm -hmm. great. You know, maybe some of these people got a scholarship. Maybe some of these people really excelled in law school. Yeah, But on average, these people are going to be graduating near the bottom of their class because that's how it works. They, they give scholarships to attract higher LSAT, higher GPA, better equipped to compete in law school. Yeah. And yes, there can be exceptions who buck all those trends, but on average, we are pretty average. And so yeah. they're like, just what about all the people who are incurring a lifetime of debt who will not find successful employment in law school or after law school. <laughs> I, I just, I, I think that these programs can do more harm than good. I agree. And the, the thing that really strikes me the most, and hopefully Maya is right, that they're going to go to a longer time frame. It would be great if they could get them some better LSAT help. Longer time frame, multiple repeats of the LSAT, 
And then don't force people into applying. <laughs> like, Don't apply unless you can get numbers that look like they're going to get you the right school at the right price. Then apply. Yeah, that's what they need to shift their focus. Number of acceptances with offers that are reasonable. And well, I would define reasonable as half just, or less. How about total debt? I mean, like expand the length of this study. I, I wish they would follow this particular cohort. I would love to know of the 40% who applied early or on time and got accepted. Let's talk about the, Let's talk to those people five years from now. Are they practicing law? How much debt do they have? Mm. Yeah. Because I am just, I'm really concerned that you're going to have a couple people who are going to succeed. And then you're going to have a whole bunch of people who are going to incur, you know, a mortgage worth, worth of student loan debt hundred yeah. percent with, without having, you know, uh, job opportunities that would justify anything close to that kind of debt. I, I do want to talk about one more thing that kind of surprised me in the study. They talked about how people who had applied before, so maybe in the previous cycle and then applied again as part of this study, I guess that didn't seem to help those people realize that they should apply earlier. And the study mentioned something about people with, I guess they kind of group people into people who had access to information about the application process and those who didn't. And there was a correlation between that and them applying earlier. And it just made me think about the podcast, people's access to information. Like, if you just go into this process and you don't seek out information about how this game is played, you're going to play it poorly and you're going to keep playing it poorly. Yeah. It's so critical that people get access to information, but also good information about how to apply. I mean, I just, it just made me think about anyone who's listening to this and has heard our glad approach. I mean, that is leaps and bounds above so many other applicants who are just doing what they think they should do. Rant, just random, yeah. you know, process. Yeah. Maya, by the way, was a hundred percent in on our glad plan hmm. of you're in, you're in undergrad now. Take advantage of it. Yeah. Learn, actually talk to your professors, get good grades. And Oh, and by the way, like the fun stuff, if you're yeah. going to have fun in school, undergrad is the time to do it. Yeah. You know, the lifelong friends and all that stuff. Yeah. Do that while you're in undergrad. Also get yeah. straight A's. Yeah. Then start thinking about the LSAT and yeah. do that until you have the number that's going to get you where you want to go for the price you want to pay, which Maya said she is intensely interested in with her students. She talks about applying broadly. She mm -hmm. talks about waiting until all the offers are in before you make any decisions. Mm. You know, she's, she's really, she, which I was very thr thrilled to hear really that she yeah. was so interested in not just getting people in, but making sure that they're paying a fair price. Yeah. Uh, then apply after the LSAT's done. Then decide once all the offers come in where and even whether you're going to accept any of those offers. Yeah. I worry, Ben, that these programs, this Access Lex program and other programs, I just worry that they're giving these 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 poor kids enough rope to just enough just enough rope to hang themselves. Yep. You know, 100% they um, got them in versus not getting in. If they hadn't gotten in, they're feeling depressed and sad that they didn't get into law school, but you're also not incurring all that debt. Oh, five years from now, the people who didn't get in 
I think are going to be better off than the people who did in yeah. this particular study. Yeah. That's and that they don't, they don't recognize that, that, you know, they're going to assume that it's just an unequivocal good. Mm -hmm. We want a more diverse bar. We want access to justice, which I do too. I totally do. I agree with, I agree with those goals, but this is not, not at the price of these individual students incurring mountains of debt. Well, the story that they tell themselves is once you get accepted to law school, then it's happily ever after. Oh, this is a win no matter what. It's just a yeah. win. Yeah. Um, there were other bogus things in the study that I just had to shake my head at. I forget exactly where it was. I can probably find it. In fact, I should find it because I'm going to accuse them of committing an actual LSAT flaw. Mm. Um, yeah. So they have some text that said that people who applied very early were the least likely to receive a law school scholarship. It says that on page 13, I'm pretty sure that that's least likely to receive a scholarship alongside their admission. Yes. It says that at the top, it says on time applicants were the most likely to receive a scholarship alongside their admission followed by late applicants. Very early applicants were least likely to receive a law school scholarship alongside their admission. But that's just because when you apply really early, they haven't done the scholarship stuff yet. So the scholarship offers come out later. <laughs> so they're making it look like you don't get. And in fact, they present a table, table three, description of scholarship award by application timing. And it shows the percentages. It also shows N for each of these groups. N being the number of people in the sample. So their sample was 28 people who applied early, 23 people who applied on time, and 14 people who applied late. Then in the narrative text, they acknowledge, small sample sizes do not allow us to fully examine the relationship between application time and scholarship awards. And then they do the LSAT, they do the LSAT flaw. Okay. This is a literal flaw from an LSAT question. Where they tell you that the sample's too small. But <laughs> then they say, our findings may suggest that while the strategy of applying early could increase an applicant's likelihood of receiving an admission offer, it does not necessarily increase their likelihood of receiving a scholarship. And so they're saying, we acknowledge that our sample is too small. Nonetheless, here's the findings. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like they threw in the word may there, I guess, might help them a little bit. But bullshit. <laughs> it's decept it's deceiving. It's deceive. They put the table on the page. If yeah. the sample's too small, then you yeah. don't put the table on the page. <laughs> because if you put the table on the page, naturally our eye gravitates and they look at that and they go, oh shit. A and it's doubly misleading because yeah. it's alongside their offer of admission, not did they eventually receive scholarship money. Mm. Mm -hmm. obviously mm -hmm. the first group is going to be the group that's going to get the best scholarship offers because they were there first. They probably have the best applications. Then again, their N is so small that you can't draw any God. Anyway, <laughs> I can stop ranting about this. I, again, I don't mean to attack these people. I think that everybody involved is well-meaning. Yeah. Uh, but you know, the, the upshot of all of this, like the, I, I can just see all the law schools looking at this going, Oh, great. Perfect. More applicants for us. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, yes, let's do more of these timing interventions because yeah. it's not, it's time right now. Like I got to get my, I got to, I got to get my class filled. 
this year again, yep. like they always do. Yeah. And so they're always happy to get more applications right now. Yeah. And they just want more grist for the mill. They want more people that they can potentially charge full price. Yeah. And that, you know, just sadly, this program seems like it's, let's see how we can take money from the student loan program and give it to these schools. Yes. Via these kids. Yep. And access is great. And I want access. I want a diverse bar. I want justice, access to justice. I want all, all those things, but I do not want impoverished students with, with low chances of the kinds of jobs that they think they're going to get after becoming a big fancy lawyer. All right. Enough of that. Let's, uh, how about we cut here to my interview with Maya Russell. When we come back, we'll do word of the week and then we will wrap it up. All right. Here's that interview with Maya. And I, again, I apologize for calling her Maya. Um, so Maya Russell is my guest today. She is the pre-law advisor at Furman University. She's also the chair of the pre-law advisor national council, which we call Plank, P-L-A-N-C. Again, pre-law advisor national council. Uh, president of the Southern Association of Pre-Law Advisors, that's SAPLA. Co-chair for the American Association of Law Schools, that's AALS. I guess you don't have a name for that. Or do you do well, like ALS? So the AALS uh-huh. uh, and the AALS has many, many sections. Oh, you're sorry. The section on pre-law education and admission to law school pre-law advisor committee. Yeah. So we have the PLEALS, which is the pre-law education and admission to law school committee. And within that larger committee, we now also have a pre-law advisor uh, group that has joined uh, because because so much of it discusses uh, the pre-law advising piece in admissions. Uh, Just new this year, we have added pre-law advisors a pre-law advisory group to that section. So yes, it's the AALS PLEALS section PLA committee. <laughs> okay. <That's laughs> we haven't come up with a good name. Let us know if you come up with something that works. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll work on it. You're also on the pre-law advisory committees for Access Lex and JD Next. Uh, boy, so we got a lot of stuff to talk about, but let me finish this bio. You received your JD from the University of North Carolina School of Law. Prior to joining Furman University, Maya served as an attorney for the United States District Court for the Districts of Wyoming and South Carolina, and she's been a faculty member at Casper College and University of Wyoming, Casper. Yes, yeah. So in the 20 years or so since uh, graduating, I attended both NYU as an undergraduate and Chapel Hill for law school as an international student. So uh, Perth, Western Australia is home home. Um, and, uh, after graduating from law school, I still did not have any form of working papers. So ended up following my husband to the university of Montana and had an opportunity to bring in an income going back to doing another master's degree. So while I was waiting for all of the papers, et cetera, to process, to be able to use my degree, um, I ended up, uh, uh, getting my first, uh, uh, interaction in, academia, which was fun. I got to TA a couple of classes and teach some undergraduate sections. So that was step one out of law school. Uh, Then I uh, followed my husband through his academic career, grabbed a couple of bars along the way and have have worked for um, 
some phenomenal judges along the way um, have have really split the last 20 years about half time now in academia uh, and about half the time in courthouses, essentially, uh, but have always just loved the teaching, um, loved the advising, loved connecting with students, loved the enthusiasm that they bring to my office every day and their excitement for, for the future is uh, just contagious. Uh, so I think uh, just over six years ago, I had the opportunity. We had a retirement here at Furman University, uh, which is in uh, Greenville, South Carolina, a beautiful place to live. Uh, but we had a retirement. A longtime pre-law advisor faculty member was stepping down. And uh, so the university hired, uh, I, I switched over from the, the courthouse and, and joined the university. I am a full-time dedicated pre-law advisor. So I now do advising only. I do not, um, so many of my pre-law advisor colleagues uh, are faculty, they're researching, um, many of them are deans, many of them are general counsels at their home universities. They They wear so many hats and I, I consider myself incredibly fortunate that I get to focus on pre-law advising and, and finding uh, fun ways to both advocate and support my students along the path. Yeah, it seems like pre-law, I mean, dedicated pre-law advising seems like the only way to go, given the stakes that are involved. Um, you know, law school tuitions, we're looking at $50,000 a year times three, and it's the beginning of your whole legal career. If you're getting bad advice from your pre-law advisor, you know, because they're busy writing treatises or <laughs> teaching classes or whatever they've got on their plate, it just seems a little unfortunate that those people would be then also doling out admissions advice. Yeah, and I, I think many of my colleagues do a phenomenal job um, with the limited time yeah. that they have, but many of them are doing it entirely as volunteers. Mm. It's not what they are paid to do. Uh, so again, I consider myself very fortunate. Uh, the other thing in pre-law advising, uh, you know, th things were the same for quite a long time. You know, there was a uh, pencil paper LSAT and it had so many sure. sections and it was this amount of time and uh, in the last couple of years with the uh, pivot to the digital LSAT, uh, with the introduction of the GRE, uh, I mean, now with the um, uh, data that they're collecting on the JD Next and just all of these various arenas, in addition to now the introduction of the next gen bar exam, we there it's it's um, keeping up with the changes that are just constant and ongoing uh, I consider that, you know, a critical part of my job. And and uh, because I do have the good fortune of, of being able to uh, try to stay on top of so many of these changes and uh, building communities and building networks so that we can stay uh, on top of all these changes, I'm then able to share it with my SAPLA board members who then share it with our larger group. You know, those of us in Plank, part of uh, what we see our role as is making sure that we're getting all of these critical changes uh, communicated to um, the other pre-law advisors uh, that, that are out there that don't have the same amount of time uh, to yeah. spend on, on top of these 
Sometimes I feel like it's weekly. Other times I feel like it's daily <laughs> um, updates. Uh, this was my first AALS conference that I attended. That was the first week of January this year. And that was a fantastic opportunity to connect with the law schools and, and hear from their points of view. It was Defending Democracy um, was the theme this year and um, hearing from the different law school deans, the different law school faculty, and then those in my own section as well, the PLEALS, uh, the pre-law education and admission to law school section about just some of the, the key issues that are on their radar, again, so we can communicate that uh, and make sure that the information that's being shared with the pre-law advisors um, through our APLAs, through Plank. Um, is accurate and up to date uh, because it, it it is moving and and we want to give our our students accurate information when we're meeting with them. Sure, let's back up a little bit. Um, I don't think Perth, Australia, is known for its connections to North Carolina. Uh, how, how did that move happen? <laughs> yeah, I had a parent who was doing a project in the Research Triangle, and I came to visit. Um, I was very, um, as, as a, a teenager, uh, basketball, uh, was one of my top mm. priorities and I started playing with a travel ball team, et cetera, and attended for a short period of time, a local high school there, um, and, uh, uh, was picked up and recruited to play at NYU. So that, you know, as a 17 year old kid from Australia and they say, do you want to come live in New York City? You say, yeah, absolutely. Let's go. <laughs> I, I don't think I even knew that other universities existed. I, I'm sure I, I must have had my, you know, we do know that there are a lot of universities, maybe not quite as many uh, as, as I now know exist. Um, but again, at 17, uh, sure. as a young Australian kid, you say, do you want to come and go to university and, and learn and play basketball for uh, a, a coach that had a phenomenal record. We ended up my, my first year at NYU winning the national championship. So oh, wow. okay. that was lovely too. <laughs> Did you get a ring for that? Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Although I will say my Furman students, cause I've had a handful of students on the basketball team uh, who I'm, I'm now working with the ring that they got after winning uh, their recent, uh, you know, making it uh, as far as they made it uh, in, in the playoffs this last season. I, th I think my ring is about a tenth the size of the, <laughs> the colossal <laughs> rings that are now being given out. So, uh, but, you know, back in the, the mid 90s in New York, we were very pleased with our rings. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. Um, so did you but you didn't finish school at NYU? You ended up mm -hmm. going back yeah. to North Carolina? No, no, I, oh, um, I, I went to undergraduate at NYU. I got it. Okay. Yep. And then so I, yep. And then, yes. Well, so I had, and I tell my students, I, you've got lots to learn from me because I went to law school for all the absolute wrong reasons. So Same. I did my four years of undergraduate at NYU um, because I had been on the basketball team and things like that. I, I really was part of when you, Perth is so far away, I mean, if you channel through the globe from where I'm sitting right now, you'll come out in my hometown. It is <laughs> right. the opposite side of the world. It is so hard to get to. Yeah. And the, I think I had a fire under me that I needed to travel as much as possible and experience as much as possible before I ended up back home. And, you know, my I would have to start work and my travel life was over And because it, it's so far away. It wasn't easy to to as easy, um, maybe as a, as a little easier now to, to bounce around. But 
um, but very focused on on wanting to get out and travel as much as possible. So I ended up my final year at NYU. I did at NYU in Paris, um, oh. and so had the good fortune to live there for a year. Uh, ended up executing my Commonwealth visa, so even though I couldn't work here in the states, I was able to to get some work um, uh, in the EU uh, and get paid work, which was helpful. Um, and so uh, just had a had a, a tremendous time. So to get back in the country because I still wasn't ready at that point in time to uh, give away my my travel ambitions. I went to law school. <laughs> so ended up coming back into re uh, igniting my I-20, uh, uh, coming back into the country and ended up doing the three years of law school uh, in North Carolina. Okay, so JD at University of North Carolina School of Law. Then you went to Montana U.S. That's, District Court. Oh, Montana uh, first. Yeah. Then well, because remember, I still didn't have working papers, so the only okay. way I could work after law school was to stay in academia. So, uh, ended up following my husband, who was doing um, a degree at Montana. We ended up getting married the night before. Um, Law school graduation, again, something I tell my students they should never do. Um, <laughs> bad idea do to pair the law two. school graduation, though, right? You just no, show up. but it was just a tough weekend. Even just yeah, making the yeah. drive to get there was tough, but that's okay. It was yeah. fun. And hey, when your family's coming in from Australia, you only want them to, to have one visit. You know, you don't want to break it into two. So we were trying to be kind and, and be inclusive. But gotcha. uh, yes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we ended up um, pivoting all over the place. Primarily, uh, my husband, who was doing a, a mathematics degree, ended up pivoting to a statistics degree. He did his Ph.D. in statistics at Colorado State University, which took us through Colorado. And that's when I took the job up over the border in Wyoming, uh, working for the, the federal court there. And, and we ended up uh, actually housing ourselves out of Casper. And we stayed there for quite a period of time. It, it was a phenomenal place. Uh, it, it was a great place. It's where our children were born and 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 had a tremendous um, start uh, to family life uh, with phenomenal colleagues at, at the uh, U.S. District Court for the District of Wyoming uh, in the Casper office. So had, had a, a really great, not only was our local courthouse really and truly a family because there's one district right in Wyoming, there's one university, yeah. <laughs> um, there's one law school. So everyone knows each other very, very well. But I was also um, wore many hats in that role. Um, so one of the uh, uh, hats that I wore was assisting uh, the Judge Cole uh, who was the full-time dedicated magistrate judge up in Yellowstone National Park. So wow. some days I got to go in the the mammoth uh, entrance of uh, uh, Yellowstone National Park and learn about uh, the fact that he'd spent his whole career there, which I just found fascinating. Um, other days I would travel down to Cheyenne mm. uh, and help uh, one of our other Article Three judge down there. Um, so whether it be you know, it could be from anything from helping with death penalty work to social security cases. I mean, we, uh, I was just there to help as needed um, and, and just really enjoyed the people in Wyoming, which I think is why we stayed as long as we did. But uh, after my husband finished his PhD, he ended up taking a job at Clemson University, which is how we ended up here in sunny South Carolina. <laughs> Got it. And, uh, Okay, so then you you transferred, it looks like, to the U.S. District Court in South Carolina? 
Um, yeah, so uh, when I first got down here, I actually, I had been teaching for the last four years before coming down here and oh. was still doing some remote teaching um, and uh, was teaching the law curriculum in a politics and criminal justice um, departments and uh, thought that it would be an easy transition. South Carolina has plenty of universities and that was certainly not the case. So ended up pivoting back to the the federal courthouses uh, just to re-engage uh, initially filling out a maternity uh, term leave. And then uh, I was commuting from Clemson to uh, Columbia during that time. And that just was not sustainable. So as soon as I had an opportunity to pivot back to the Greenville office, which is about a 45 minute commute, that was much better than the two hours. So, um, so yeah, so now we live in Clemson, which is a fun college town, university town. Um, And uh, I commute into Greenville to Furman each day and, I, I, Furman, I, I think it was just announced, we're, we're one of the Duke Endowment Schools, Furman University. Um, and so they have uh, really done a phenomenal job of um, building, mentoring and advising support, uh, narrowly tailored mentoring and advising. So I, I work in the Office of Pre-Professional Advising where I help any of the students who are interested in investigating legal careers, pursuing legal careers, um, but the rest of my office, which uh, where uh, we sit within academic affairs, they help all the students who are health careers interested. Um, so I get to handle anyone who's law interested and the rest of my office handles the abundance of health careers, which all right have their own advising pieces, dental, medical, etc., uh-huh. Um, so I think my job is a lot easier. I got I got the easiest job because at least it's 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 one type of program that we're we're investigating rather than the plethora of health careers and all the various graduate schools. Do you ever try to steer people down the hall? Like um, you know, you I I actually really what they're doing, looking for pre law advising, and you go. So we. A lot of our students are uh, work with both of us because we work with prospect. You know, we'll meet prospective students as to um, why they might want to consider Furman, not only for small class sizes, accessible faculty. You know, uh, it's a residential campus, but this narrowly tailored advising and mentoring, I, I think, is is one of the the selling points. As a, you know, obviously I'm biased, but I think that, um, but, uh, a lot of our students come in and they don't know, I might be interested in health law or I might be interested in going to medical school. And so we will, our entire office, they'll, they'll work with, with both, um, areas of our office, maybe for multiple years, um, before they've collected sufficient experiences, internships, shadows, informational interviews, yeah. Um, they, and, and, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you can obviously major in anything to go down these paths, but for the health careers fields, medical school, dental school, optometry, PT, they do have requirements in terms of courses and, uh, courses that you are going to need to take for entrance to those programs, uh, or to just prep, you know, to be able yeah. to survive the MCAT, et cetera, versus law school. That's the nice thing. It's right. more likely that they start there because I tell them you've, you've got to, you, if, if that is the path that you're leaning towards, you've got to to pursue that because there are required classes. At any moment in time, you change your mind and you decide law school is for you. No worries. Pivot. There's 
Law school has no required major, no required classes, uh, a robust liberal arts education, no matter what you major in, we're going to work on those key critical skills, uh, you know, ability to, to communicate effectively, critical thinking skills, um, uh, ability to read data, you, whether you're an econ major, whether you're a history major, whether you're a mathematics major, music major, we so long as you can convey those passions in your application to law school, um, you can pivot at any time during your time here at Furman or beyond. Uh, uh, the majority of students I work with in any given cycle are actually alumni. They might have got out and done some fellowships or got that work experience um, enough to now decide they're ready to to pivot and and commit to law school. Um, so I'm never pushing ever anyone that law school is right for you. If a student wants to come in and explore the profession, I'm going to try to couple them um, to make sure that they're getting the exposure to make an informed decision. And if at any point while at Furman or beyond, they decide that law school is right for them, we're going to get together and work together pretty closely to to prepare a really robust application, not only to try to gain admissions to the programs that they're wanting to prioritize, but also to try to secure the merit aid that will make it um, a, a real option for them to pursue. You mentioned the importance of merit aid, which is something that we talk about all the time on this podcast. Why is merit aid so important from your perspective? Yeah, uh, I was an international student, so I didn't qualify for loans. So you figured out how to go to law school <laughs> that was you're going to be able to pay for, right? Um, and so going to the state school where I was able to qualify for in-state tuition because I had a parent who was paying local taxes uh, 20 plus years ago, I think we were paying about $2,000 a semester for law school, which seemed like a tremendous amount of money back then. I compare and contrast that to some of the loan debt my students are now considering. Um, and I am terrifically debt adverse and it makes me nervous. Um, it makes me nervous for them. And for some of them, it is not a big deal. I have students who they were looking at what are their career goals? Um, what does their family support? Do they have any family support? Do they have savings they're willing to put to this? Or are we going to take out the full amount in, in loan debt? And what does that loan debt repayment look like? Um, so those are all various factors uh, that we are looking at, the type of work. A lot of my students are looking for traditional law jobs. Many of them do want to target big law jobs. Um, and those that have done the research and know what that um, means, um, I'm, I'm less concerned about those students being able to, to try to live uh, frugally and get that money paid back uh, over a five, seven year term, for example. But for my students who are focusing on public interest and we're a very service-driven uh, undergraduate institution, that's why a lot of our students are drawn to us. I have disproportionately high numbers of students who um, either want to stay here in the Southeast where earning potential is going to be lower than if you're looking at average numbers for different types of legal jobs. I have a lot of students who are public interest driven. That's why they are going to law school. So we're looking at NALP surveys and we're looking at the public interest surveys and we're looking at, at uh, outcomes, not only within the different areas of law, but in the different geographical regions for what is a realistic salary for the type of 
of law you might want to practice. And I have pretty significant numbers of students looking at JD Advantage jobs. So whether it be in business, whether it be in nonprofit uh, management, whether it be in academia, uh, and we need to really not think about, well, what does my income look like coming out of law school um, initially and then longer term, for example? Uh, we will we have access Lex, who's a nonprofit uh, free uh, access to to financing advice advising for students, which is fabulous. They'll come in and do a financing lecture with my students each cycle. Um, that we'll invite the parents along with all the students to collect that information. If there's spouses or other loved ones who's going to be sharing in the debt load, we want everyone to collect that information. But we're using the student loan calculator and we're sitting down and we're putting as they're getting right now, starting to get their acceptances. We're comparing and contrasting. We're calculating cost of attendance. We're looking at how much are you going to have to pay back monthly for 10 years if we take the standard 10-year repayment plan? Um, and does that fit with my geographical preferences, job outcomes? Um, and is this something I'm going to be able to manage? I, I think those are easier conversations to have with my alumni who are better equipped to be able to say, oh my goodness, uh, you know, this is how I, who have worked with budgets, who've had an income and worked with budgets. For a traditional undergraduate coming straight out, um, they might still have undergraduate loans, parental support. Yeah. They haven't yet uh, have had to figure that out. And so just understanding you'll have insurance costs, you'll have rental costs, <laughs> you'll have cell phone costs, you'll have food. Oh, my goodness. I mean, uh, you, there's lots of great budget apps out there. And I tell my students, especially those that do like to um, travel a lot, like, and I, I completely get it, right? Like, do it while you can, um, but also worried about how we are going to meet those repayment plans while also yeah. maintaining the lifestyle that they so desire. So, well, uh, you know, we're, we're working through all of those pieces. Yeah. I'm And I'm glad you are. I mean, the truth is that the law school tuition and the amount of loans that many students get themselves into, honestly, dwarf all of those things that you were just talking about. It's like, yeah, yeah your cell phone is expensive. I mean, your cell, and you have to have your cell phone. <laughs> but compared to, you know, if you graduate from law school with a couple hundred thousand dollars in debt, your monthly payment is going to be. I think we encourage our students to be savvy consumers. Yeah. To assess the return on their investment, to understand what their career goals are. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is, is we are building, I want my students to have options. When we are building their school lists, and one of the things we need to push, whether it be the LSAT or whatever their valid and reliable test they're using is along, is we want to have those scores in play before we can build a school list, before we can then Thank sit you. down and start the application piece. And Thank so you. for my students, they need to have a broad list of schools. Yes, I want you to have your reach schools where you are willing to take out an additional investment because possibly we can make an argument that it might UVA channels students into big law. If that's terrifically important to you, then and you have the profile to to pair with that, that might be a good option for this student. But that's not going to be the case for all of my students. We are also making sure that students are looking at um, safety schools, and we want them to have numerous safety schools where both their LSAT and GPA ideally exceeds medians. 
uh, because that's where they're going to be in the best position to secure merit aid. Um, If I have students who we know are going to qualify for needs-based aid, we are looking at the institutions that also possibly, if they meet and are are competitive at those institutions, the hybrid needs merit-based aid institutions, because those might ultimately, uh, there's a possibility, depending on how things shake out, uh, they might actually be a a best bang for your buck. What schools are you talking about? You know, the the needs-based aid, the hybrid needs-based aid, so... For example, I, I have students at Yale. I have students at Stanford. Sure. I, I have students at um, at Har- Harvard, obviously. So my understanding there is that it's not hybrid at all. It's just well, it, they don't needs, give Excuse me. Based. So they are needs-based aid. If you look yes. then down to the next group. So so there's needs-based aid. There's a little bit of um, Stanford is a, 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 has some additional opportunities there. But if you come then down out of that group that it's pretty much needs-based only, right? Merit's not going to help you because everyone's meritorious. Um, to Duke and some of those other uh, schools that are very popular in my home region, yep. there are some of those big privates that are looking, anyone who collects the CSS profile in addition to the FAFSA that you've completed and are looking at parentals might also have a hybrid needs merit. And that's where our students possibly might be able to secure some additional funding as well to make those manageable. You said CSS profile? Excuse me. So the there's additional, some of the big privates have additional, um, in addition, of course, the, the FAFSA, everyone who's going to need loans for school, right. December 31st this year, the form went live. It took about a week, but they eventually, my students have now been able to complete it or start to complete it. You can now add this year uh, with the new form up to 20 schools on your one form, which is fabulous because it used to be 10. Now we can go up to 20 on the one form. Um, But some of uh, the schools, also the big privates, um, Vanderbilt, Duke, had also uh, collected some additional tax information from parents because there is this hybrid needs merit. Now, that being said, I will say Duke doesn't use the CSS profile anymore. They have now an internal form that you you can get as part of your application there. So they're going to collect that information directly. They're not using the additional CSS, which just is another layer of looking at, um, right? There's a difference between a student who, all of our students don't have any money, right? <laughs> they're students. So they, they, they typically right. have very limited income while they're full-time students. Yeah. Um, but there's a difference, even if parents say, we are not helping you, there's a difference between the parents who could, if necessary, help you meet your rent, you know, a month or mm-hmm. oh, sure. some period, right? Like, And so that's what I think the law schools through these additional levels are also looking at a family's ability to help if necessary and, and sure. trying to make sure that the financing piece isn't going to prohibit wonderful students from joining their institution. Got it. Now, I so, will say, um, just let me add to that. My yeah. students, again, on, on building their really broad list, Um, We are very narrowly tailoring and we can talk a little bit about how applications have changed this cycle because it is quite significant. But we are, as we're building the lists and where one of my uh, things that I really enjoy, I put my students, we'll jump in a van, we'll we'll meet and we go tour law schools and we talk to the law school admissions teams. We invite the, the schools to campus. We're having uh, uh, panels come in once a week in the mm-hmm. fall just to collect information. Um, but one of the critical pieces is a lot of my students, especially those that are public interest, JD, Advantage, 
interested, et cetera. Um, they're really targeting the schools that have uh, significant merit aid, if not full ride. So a significant number of my students are going where they get full ride offers. Same. Uh, and it's something that we never stop talking about on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Have you seen our scholarship estimator, Maya, the tool that we built? I, I've had, I played around a little bit, both with the, the scholarship list and yep. then the, the estimator. You know, the, the schools are so different now. Um, I think the schools also recognize that the loan debt isn't sustainable. And I think more like I'm, I'll pick on my local school, South Carolina, the Joseph F. Rice School of Law now in one of the big things that they have done different from last year to this year is they have more scholarship money to give students. Um, And that is going to draw more of my students who might have gone out of state are going to be able to go to their local in-state school. They're going to be able to stay because they figured out a way to get more scholarships there. UGA is one of those where the students will interview um, or get an invitation to possibly interview to staff some of the clinics there. And if they're successful in that endeavor, I've got students who who are there right now, who have graduated recently, who are on full rides. Uh, I mean, that's going to open up their options on the tail end of law school to do things that they're passionate about and enjoy and can really contribute. And they're not forced to take law jobs that they're never going to stay in long term. And and so that's what we want for our students. We want them to find, and it certainly doesn't have to be the law, right? It, It could be uh, uh, so many different things. Um, but, uh, we want our students to find satisfying careers. And first they've got to figure out what they enjoy, what they like, what drives them, what they're passionate about. And if that happens to be law, great. I want you to have options. So when we're applying to law school, we have a broad list, have those reach schools. So we have that cost of attendance calculation to put in play once you go to all your admitted student days and figure out which is the one that you just, your gut speaks to and, but have those safeties and make sure that you've got plenty of schools on your list where we are going to be competing for merit aid so that that is one of the pieces, one of the key factors that you're able to sit down um, as an individual with your family and put into your equation, Mm -hmm. especially because so many of my students do you know, you get very comfortable with the climate down in the southeast sure. <laughs> and a lot of people want to stay. And um, we've, we've my students need to know that they may they're not going to be earning the way that the their classmates who go big yeah. law Manhattan, big law Chicago, um, even D.C., yeah. are, they're not going to have the same earning, but they also don't have the same overhead. So we're putting we're talking through all of these pieces really ad nauseum. Um, but ultimately, they, the, the student needs to know what is their individual threshold sure. um, for debt and what are their long-term goals and what is the return on the investment, bar passage, yeah. employment opportunities. Yeah. Um, you know, what are, what are those, those, some of those critical factors look like in finding a best fit school for them? Because again, my students are at more states than I can count. Um, they, they need to go with what is the best fit for them. Um, I, I don't want to be a bummer, but it's kind of my job. Um, I, I want to talk about the double-edged sword of these merit-based scholarships mm-hmm. because somebody at the school has to pay tuition. Uh, you mentioned Georgia a second ago. 
And so I'm going to just share my screen with you, Maya, and click through this stuff. Um, I'm, I'm on my scholarship estimator that we built here. Can you see that, Maya? I can. Yeah, okay. So uh, this is just a list of all of the ABA accredited schools. And then you put in an LSAT and a GPA down here and you hit calculate. There's some other things here like in-state or URM status. And then we estimate and we pull that data off of last year's ABA 509 reports. Yes. So I wanted to look at a school that does give generous uh, merit-based aid, which is University of Georgia Law School, Athens, Georgia. And here we've built, I don't know if you've seen this yet, Maya, but we have a little different way of visualizing the data for each school. Again, this is all just data that's coming right off of that public American Bar Association section 509s. 509 mm -hmm. uh, report. But this is a way that students can visualize what it might look like for you. Here we've got a 3.3 uh, a and a 158 applicant who is a, you know, okay applicant for a school like Georgia. Um, not a, I not think a great, that student is going to have a hard time. Yeah, not a great applicant. And if they do get in, they are going to be bearing the Pain. load. Yeah, yes. the, the thing that I wanted to, to just point out here is that at a school like this, they the, the schools that do give merit-based scholarships, it's not just like some of the people in the school are getting a merit-based scholarship. Here, we have a school where all but 7% of the school is getting some kind of a grant. So another piece for Georgia, for example, is Georgia State in-state tuition is 17000 University okay. of Georgia in-state tuition is 19000 Georgia, North Carolina, Colorado, there are not all the states, but many of the states will let students reclass out of state to in state, one L year to two L year, should they meet the residency requirements. So, again, when we're calculating the three years cost of attendance, mm -hmm. and I know the max for tuition that you're going to pay. Um, 2L year, 3L year, if you don't get a cent is 19,000, it still may be a better bet for you given the employment, given the bar passage. I do wish Georgia would go UBE, but that's a topic for another date. Um, it obviously is still a state bar. So my students really who do want to live and work in Georgia, we are going to have to decide, you know, are they going to take the UBE and the Georgia bar? But getting back to cost, um, if, if you're comparing and contrasting a max 2L three year, assuming they can qualify for the equivalency um, in-state tuition or in-state tuition to 3L year, it still may be a, a good option for those students when you look at the total amount they're going to have to take out if they can find savvy ways um, to keep their living and other expenses down. Um, and so it, it is actually one of the schools that I'm less concerned about because the in-state tuition is so stellar compared to other sure, places. But even if you do get the discount, I mean, it's a sure it's a discounted rate. It's still twenty thousand dollars. Right. Yeah. But if you're going, I mean, it, you are you're investing in this. You're investing in. Um, these three years for sure. securing outcomes on the tail end. 
But then um, don't you have to compete with these people, the the 25% of the class who are there because of their LSAT and their GPA? I don't know how who, many of them are going to DC, to New York, to Chicago to focus on other options and not staying there locally. I mean, I, I don't know. I will tell you I some of my students, I mean, we'll have to, a lot of my students go and focus on the Georgia schools because that is their home state or that is where they want to live and work. Um, but you are going to, on the very top end of most of the schools, lose some of that portion to your DC market, to your New York market, et cetera, to a certain degree. That's what raises the average salary of Georgia law grads to what it is, right? Is that, yes, there are some people who are going to go to DC and work in big law and make $180,000 a year. That's largely not the people who are going to stay in Georgia. I mean, I'm sure there's some big law jobs in Georgia as well that the school might get you access to, but I, I don't know. In my view, you know, these, these 25% of the people who are there with higher LSAT and higher GPA, that's why they got the merit scholarship to begin with. Yes. And that's the same at every school, right? That's the right. same at every school that offers merit scholarships. Yeah. And yeah. so I guess I, what I'm trying to do, Maya, is put you in the same conundrum that Ben and I feel like we're always in, which is we advise people to go out and hunt down these scholarships if they can, because, hey, if, you, if it's the right school for you and you can go for zero dollars, then why wouldn't you go for zero dollars? But then every time I say that, I just realized that there's also these people down here who are going to be one of the few people on campus who are who are paying full price. Now, what about if they do exceptionally well first year? Um, right. There's sure. been they had a hard time during COVID pivoting to right. Their GPA wasn't where and it needed with the to LSAT, be. Yeah. Um, we, we hear all the same excuses. Every, yeah. every now and then you will hear you will see some students totally. who do better than their numbers should have predicted yep. and those students um you have additional avenues of funding coming open to you heading into 2L year whether it be TA GA I mean my students uh, I won't talk about UGA but just if I look more broadly at the five Georgia schools I have students on full rides there that has nothing to do with merit aid from the law school they've gone and they have found other ways to uh, get jobs at the undergraduate, right? If they're one of my athletes and they tutor for uh, the undergraduate and that comes with a tuition waiver, we don't have to take from others. There are other creative ways to find funding avenues and to keep your loan costs down uh, if you're willing to live frugally, take on a roommate, right? Different things like that. And those are all the things that we're talking through. But and and sure, there there are exceptions. There are people who will go there, pay full price, and be the valedictorian. Um, it, you know, unlikely. But there are exceptional cases. There are also people who are there on, and I I would love to learn more about these other sources of funding. But what percentage of students who are on a full ride would you say are there because of tuition assistance from the school? Yes. Yeah, so the majority. The merit aid that students receive, the majority of that I tell my students to expect to come from the school itself. Almost exclusively from the school itself. Yeah. I mean, if there's 100 people at the school on a full ride, it's 98 of them are there because of a full ride that was given by the school, right? It's easier for the school to say, oh, we'll charge you zero than it is for 
some other outside person to give somebody the tuition money. The yes. Yeah. No, I agree with that. Okay, cool. Um, let's, um, let's shift, uh, topic a little bit. Talk to me about, uh, Plank. I'm excited to, uh, learn. Yes, more. we are incredibly excited. Um, in 2020, Plank, uh, the Pre-Law Advisor National Council, uh, had a phenomenal conference scheduled to meet in <laughs> New Orleans and yeah. about, I mean, we're talking days before everyone got on planes, the the world shut down. Uh, um, yeah. So now it is, we, the Plank conferences uh, occur in, it's a quadrennial conference, so it's in a presidential election year. That's how it's, they're easy to remember. So this is the first time in eight years we will meet as a group and the Plank conferences are phenomenal because they draw uh, pre-law advisors from institutions, two-year institutions, four-year institutions from across the country. Uh, they uh, draw all of the law school admissions teams um, to come and connect and learn together, learn from each other along with the vendors um, and so it really puts everyone in the pre-law advising profession and space in a single location just once every four years. So registration is open right now. We'll be meeting in June for four days. Uh, and we're just excited not only to have fun, but to learn. Uh, uh, again, there have yeah. been so many changes. It's hard for so many of our pre-law advisors who are full-time faculty and other things mm. to stop and pause and be able to dedicate time to professional development. And Plank provides this opportunity. It provides an opportunity to, to connect directly and collect those updates from the primary sources. Um, it, uh, we're able to learn from each other. We're able to brainstorm with each other. Um, but more so, I, I think where Plank is so important and the Applers are so important um, because the six regional Applers feed mm -hmm. into Plank, right? Those mm -hmm. are their members. Um, but it it gives you a community. So I'm the only full-time pre-law advisor. You know, I, I, I'm in an office, but everyone else does health careers. So, uh, you know, yeah. as the pre-law advisor, I, I sit alone and I think through these things that I'm learning alone. So, Plank really provides a phenomenal opportunity for community, for networking, um, to build friendships uh, that, uh, you know, my my phone this morning, most of my text message had been to my other pre-law advisor friends uh, 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 that are in states near and far as we're processing, again, new changes. We're hearing about things. How would you handle this? How do, how do I find students' resources to this? Where yeah. are some different um, diversity resources? Did you see this upcoming deadline for UVA? You know, their their new uh, pipeline program is coming really rapidly. So um, it really allows, especially so many of us who are somewhat isolated in our own home institutions, a community. Uh, and, and that's why I think it is is so important. You've got a, net, a support network. You've got a group of people who have your same job in various degrees across the nation that you can lean on and ask for support from um, that are doing and trying to help and advocate for students, support students the same way that you are. Perfect point to segue. Um, what is happening right now in law school admissions? You said things have changed significantly this year. Well, of course, we had the um, fair admissions decision that came out of SCOTUS and the um, 
the schools in the in the middle of a new software update <laughs> um, also had an opportunity to pause, uh, get with uh, their general councils, typically on most of their yeah. home campuses, um, read the majority opinion and decide exactly what they wanted to do. So uh, most of the universities. Uh, law schools have pivoted away from the traditional personal statement, diversity statement, although some still do call it and title the statements that they're collecting from students, those two things. Uh, a lot of the schools now talk about a, a statement of purpose and a statement of perspective. Um, but what we have seen, and, and this, if I do have students who are current cycle applicants applying right now, be patient, be patient, be patient. Um, this is a slow cycle because of the adjustment and modifications to the various statements. What we have seen from most of the law schools is they now have maybe uh, still that personal statement or, or statement of purpose, but now they have two, three, four additional options. So it took the students longer because they wanted to narrowly tailor those applications and those individual statements to properly convey to the schools how excited they are and a good fit for those schools. It took the students longer to complete the applications. It is taking the law schools longer to read and review files. And so I do think um, that is one piece of why I think this is a slow cycle uh, a secondary piece, of course, is with the LSAT um, partner, or excuse me, LSAC partnered with a new proctor through Prometrics. And um, so for the LSAT, now the students had the option, you know, they could go to a testing yep. center or they could still continue it in a private acceptable room um, individually um, as those proctors uh, got up to speed. I had several students, and and I know my students weren't alone. This this was nationally um, August September. Uh, some of those proctoring situations were rocky, um, and it pushed back uh, for many of the students uh, getting uh, a conducive environment to getting a good strong score on the books, and it yeah. might have uh, pushed that. So you had the the test pushing back a little bit, possibly through no fault of the students. Um, it could have just been some technical issues that and some training issues that needed to be finessed. You have the students spending more time on wanting to narrowly tailor and do a really good job to build strong applications. And that is going to mean drafting more statements. Uh, and, and so I, I do think, of course, February, March will start I, I do think my students, because a lot of the schools will have seat deposit deadlines in April and May, will start hearing. Um, uh, you shouldn't expect to hear from every school. Every year I have students who don't hear from every school they applied to. Uh, we certainly can follow up with schools, but um, it, it has been slower for students to get their files completed and and as anticipated with software changes and other things going on behind the scenes, slower for schools to get those files um, under review and and completion. Are April and May the earliest deposit deadlines, or are there deposit deadlines earlier than that? Uh, there, well, so there's of course the early binding deadlines, and so if it, it depends on if you're talking early binding or general admissions. So we don't advise er people to apply to binding early admissions very often. I bet. 
very rarely. There, uh, so the interesting thing with early binding is typically no, because merit aid and aid and cost is one of <laughs> Let's those talk critical about price factors. Before I bind myself um, to your school, yes. Yeah. How, however, some of the early binding schools mm-hmm. come with significant. You know, you're guaranteed forty thousand a year, or you're. Uh, some of the schools have done things differently. They have now revised what they're doing, but some of those early bindings came with full rides. And if yep. they knew that they were geographically bound to that area because they had a, a spouse who was a faculty mm-hmm. at that school and they could bind themselves early to that school, that made perfect sense, right? There, yep. there are scenarios where early binding could make sense for an individual yep. student, but typically no. Um, typically the student should apply broadly. Let's see how all of it shakes out. Go to your admitted student days, do your gut check, check out the culture. Let's look at geography and uh, future goals and cost and all of the factors and make a best uh, fit law school analysis for you and your individual yeah. goals. And that's where I think pre-law advisors are so important. And for those who who exist in the advising space, it, it takes students a long time to collect this information, to process this information, um, and and to figure out even once they start getting their acceptances what actually is a best fit, and and that's where I think um, get I I work with students often four, five, six years before we have to go through the uh, which school are you going to accept. I'm getting to know the students pretty well, and I know what their goals are. I know what their outcomes are. I, I you know I I know. I've got to know their families. Um, so I, I feel like I'm in a really good position to try to support their their end goals. Yeah. Um, if, if I've had the good fortune to to have that that length of relationship. And if I haven't, I'll do my best to get to know you as quickly as I can. Um, but that's where um, I know one of the, the questions I often get is um, from students outside of my institution. So every now and then the pre-law advisors will go and will um, stand in at uh, one of the LSAC forums. You know, we'll have a, a pre-law advisor table there. Mm. And and one of the questions we often get is, well, how do I find out if there's a pre-law advisor at my home institution? Well, if you're a current student, um, I hope and I know not all institutions have the good fortune of having a designated pre-law advisor, but most of them do because that's how you get the data reports for your home institution. Um and and so when you sign into your LSA, when the students sign into the LSAC account, um, LSAC has changed this for us over the past couple of months, six months ago or 12 months ago. You now have uh, your designated for your, your undergraduate institution pre-law advisor of record on your home screen oh, so that you could reach out to that. We actually, Plank, asked LSAC if they would help students be able to more readily identify who their pre-law advisor is. And um, sure. LSAC was very gracious and put that on. So the, the yeah. hopefully most students can identify oh God, yes. who. If they've come that far that they're actually opening up an LSAC account, then they're serious about law school, then yeah. And, and we would hope that they the would connect. Their advisor, <laughs> the yeah. phone number would be um, And then if you're an alumni, I always say, reach back out to your undergraduate institution because, you mm. know, for reporting purposes, um, you're mine, <laughs> right? So I want to support you too. Um, and so sure. I, I, I'm willing, whether I've got alumni that's been out one, two years, five years, 10 years, whether they're, 65 and retiring and pivoting back to law school. Um, yeah. Love to help you. It would be my pleasure. 
So reach back out to your undergraduate institution and find out if there's a, a designated pre-law advisor who who may serve their alumni. Some institutions um, are willing and have the capacity to serve alumni. Some others, I think once you've been out, uh, uh, certainly our institution, we serve current students and alumni, but yeah. I'm a small liberal arts institution. So I have the good fortune of having the time and capacity to do that. I understand many of my colleagues at large state universities would not have that option, yeah. but it's worth reaching out and seeing if they have any suggestions. And then, um, sure. of course, when you go to your LSAC forums and other things like that, there are pre-law advisor tables and and people on hand um, to take general questions. If you just have some quick questions as well, if you haven't been able to identify someone from your, your home institutions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, are, are you willing to speculate on what you think the fallout's going to be from the Supreme Court ruling last year? Is it going to be a like a horror year for diverse applicants? Is it going to be a, a huge so, spike in white and Asian applicant or uh, admittees? I, I fear that a lot of students were hesitant to apply mm. maybe this cycle um, when I and pre-law advisors and law schools are encouraging them to please, please, please apply. Like we all want a diverse bar. We want um, the profession to be representative of the America that we serve. Um, and I, I think that most, either those of us at Planck, those of us in the Aplas, really want and and are fighting to support our underrepresented and our diverse applicants. Yeah. Um the 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 challenge there I think is if you haven't had a pre-law advisor telling you, "Hey, go read the the Roberts majority." They didn't say, "Student, you can't disclose this information." They said, "Law school, you can't make your decisions based on certain factors." And some of the law schools uh, have been quite cautious. I look at my own law school, who was a named litigant at Chapel Hill, of course, yeah. or the the undergraduate, um, the is Chapel Hill. Um, they are some of the schools are going blind admissions, where okay. um, LSAC is going to hold, and it's a pretty significant number of law schools will hold some of the demographics information until you've seated your class, and then it will be made available to you because, of course, you still need to meet your ABA reporting requirements. Um, but just to make sure that they're not being told that they're using the data inaccurately um, on but the admission side. If you're but black, you can put that in your personal statement, even I, if UNC is not <laughs> having you check boxes anymore. If you if you look at the language, and this is why the schools have given you so many options and opportunities, tell me what is your statement of perspective? Where do you come from? How has some hardships that you've overcome driven your path to law school? And so I think law uh, pre-law advisors have been hoping and encouraging and making sure that the students aren't feeling discouraged because I, I think it's more important than ever that students who are passionate about justice, equity, right, are, are, are yeah. going to law school. Um, so I, I know that I, I certainly have heard from many deans in the law school environment, uh, many undergraduate uh, deans, et cetera, presidents who worry about the short, the next decade and its impact of this decision and that 
pre-law advisors and others in the profession are going to have to take a more active, encouraging advocacy role as we make sure that none of the students themselves are discouraged from applying um, because they can absolutely tell their story. And I hope they're telling the story. Actually, Law School X gave you seven options to tell your story. Yeah. That's why it's taking so long to get these applications completed and 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 slowing down the the completion rate. But take those take those opportunities. Tell your story. Tell us. You know, everyone says what makes a a strong application. Like you want all of the components to fit together, and you want you know. I I always think about when you're you've you've got your transcripts. We can see what classes we've got your resume. We can see how engaged you are, what leadership roles you've taken. But look at the options that you have to tell your story. And if it's asking you about a statement of perspective, tell me about your upbringing. Tell me about, you know, give me the grit statement. Tell me about like what drives you. And then on the statement of purpose, tell me about why what you're passionate about is driving this step to law school. And let me piece all of that together as one complete story, right? So when all of the 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 components, chapters in a book work to tell your narrative, your story, that makes for a rock star application. But you've got to take some time in putting those pieces together, being responsive to the questions that the law schools are asking. The other thing that I will tell um, the, the students who are starting to prepare applications or or looking at applications, whether it be for this cycle or for next, read the instructions carefully. So yes, you know, it it is going to take you longer than you think to prepare the LSAT, the GRE, whatever you're going to use. Yeah. Give yourself double the time, triple the time than you thought you needed because you may need to take it twice. You may need, you're right, it's five times in five years. We've got you've got plenty of time to try to get this score to a competitive level, but you need to put in the time. So then what do you say to somebody who says, but I have to apply, I have to start law school this cycle. I have to start law school this fall. I say to them, why? I'm 27. I, uh, I say to them and uh, so the, what, what I get more commonly at my institution is I've got 17, 18, 19 year olds that somehow got done in high school at 16. I don't want to take a gap year. Eight, they don't want to take a gap year. That's what I'm getting all the time. And I say, why? Right. You're not even 21. Like all the social fun stuff at law school, you at least need some of that is is unfortunately or fortunately, whatever, around some drinking opportunities often or or uh, networking opportunities. Why do you want to do this at 19, at 20? Right. Like, let, let's let's go out and do something really fun. Travel, work on languages, do some other things on the path. What I am doing is I'm meeting not only with the students, but their parents. It is very, very rarely the student who is giving themselves um, a directive that they must go through directly to to graduate school. It is more typically a parent who is worried that if they take any step outside an educational environment, they won't find their way back. Mm. So if I can meet with the parents and the students and let's talk about timelines Let's talk about how we can strengthen your application. If while at Furman, you get one shot at an undergraduate GPA, choose the right major, choose what you're passionate about. So you love what you're studying and you're going to do better. And while you're at undergraduate, focus on 
undergraduate, you get one shot in undergraduate GPA. You get five shots at, at the LSAT. Yeah. I hope we had, we're not going to torture you and make you take all five, but if we need to, um, some of the schools won't love that, but that's okay. There might be reasons there where Let's, we have to I take it multiple on times. A little bit? Yeah. Well, I've sent people to, I mean, I've got somebody who's at Yale right now who took it five Mm -hmm. times. Yeah. I have somebody who's at Harvard right now who took it five times. I have somebody who's, I mean, I have students all across the country who are at full ride on full ride scholarships at great schools who took it five times. So where does that stigma actual come from? So I think, well, one, you're going to have to pay $222 each time you take each of those five tests. So there is some cost piece to Granted. it, right? Like, so if let's say money's no issue because you got the highest level of well, we also waiver, have to which compare got you the first two. The but bigger money to the like $222. We, we absolutely do. And times and five is nothing compared the, to 50,000 times three. Typically, the bigger issue there is often the mental fatigue that goes into being in the materials for a very extended period. And what am I doing between test three and four? Or what am I doing between test four and five to actually improve my score? Um, But yes, I I will have students who take it five times. There's no doubt about it because they need to because we need to make them a competitive applicant and that they're if you're allowed five times, students have that option and that option should be theirs. Yeah, I mean, only your highest score counts. Only the high, every score is reported to your law school. It is the highest score that the law schools must report to the ABA. Um, now, if you look, you know, we talked about what things are changing. Um, if you look at the US News World rankings and you look at the new formula that goes into those rankings, your GPA plus your LSAT score make up 9%, right? Uh, now, I don't think that has translated to how I still think schools are being pretty traditional in the way that they are seating their class. Well, and when my dean. How do when they my dean judge for says, employability, right? So I, I, you interview. I actually, I personally think as I, if I was mm. in law school admissions and had capacity, I would be interviewing every single student. Yeah. Um, but again, there's capacity issues there. And I, you know, I, I'm certainly not telling law schools what to do. I'm just yeah. saying if I was in that world and could yeah. figure out the timing, I, I'm adding interviews. <laughs> yeah. That would make sense. Um, I mean, it's, it's yeah. a little hard when you've got 10,000 yeah. applications for yeah, uh, 500 spots. Clearly could never do it. Right. Yeah. Or, or though there are some schools, you know, I'm, I'm always blown away. I, you know, I had students obviously have interviewed at Georgetown recently and UVA and some of these different places. So there, there, there certainly are schools that whether it be group interviews or individual interviews, or some schools don't do it for admissions, but do it for the merit aid, allocation you know so some schools are figuring mm. out some it's a recorded interview so you get two oh, or three shots to, yeah. yeah which i not my favorite yeah. i'd much rather talk to a, a person hard, than stare yeah. at my head on a screen and you know you get two or three opportunities to to redo it and you can never get it the way you want it but yeah. um but uh, so in any case uh, the numbers matter there's no doubt the numbers matter the numbers matter for admission the numbers matter for for merit aid um, and that's why if the students would please, please give themselves plenty of time, one shot an undergraduate GPA, multiple shots at the LSAT, but give yourself ample time in a perfect world, we would have at the very least your first LSAT, if not a second before yep. we start cycle so that I can, we can start building a school list. Um, I, yep. I do question whether 
because of the volume of materials that the law schools got, because a lot of students did diligently work through all the optional essays, maybe, or many of them, um, whether we will see from this cycle to next cycle, um, I do think we'll see some tweaking of some of those optionals. Some of them work better. Some of them, they got collected data that was more helpful than others in terms of, you know, I, yep. I think we'll tweak because every now and then I'll have a student who says, oh yeah, I've jumped in. I've opened the applications. I'm like, why? You're applying next cycle. Yeah. Are you just trying to get out of studying for the LSAT right now? Like, yeah. what, Why did this seem like a good idea to jump yeah. in and work through an application I, when we could have different questions by next cycle? So there seems to be a bit of a conflict. I, I've noticed um, some of the stuff that Access Lex has done. And did you see their report that they put out? last week the study about application timing among historically underrepresented applicants i have seen the summary i have not d done any form of a deep dive nor spoken to anyone at access lex about the data they collected okay yeah i i read the whole thing and i i want to dig into it more and and think about it more but they seem to be missing the advice and it's it's so well-meaning this advice for you know for lack of a better word, diverse applicants or underrepresented is probably an even better word, applicants. The advice seems, they don't seem to get the the piece that says, you know, your grades are really important. You really should be getting A's if you can. And, and then the LSAT is also really, really important and you should be getting the best LSAT you can. Then your applications are important and then making the decision is important, but instead they, the advice seems to be, and I've seen this in, in various other pipeline programs as well. And it, it always just concerns me. It's like on day one, they have kids working on their personal statement and it's like, well, okay, <laughs> but they're getting B's and C's in their undergraduate classes. What yeah, are we doing? I, that is why I typically advise my students one shot an undergraduate GPA. Plus, I want you to do all the fun things yeah. you come to undergraduate to Take do. Take advantage like, of the enjoy school you're actually in right now. Like, yeah. Yes. And, and that <laughs> I tell my students that every day. Like I, I also am going to tell them as incoming freshmen, uh, you know, I, I think we use first years. We don't use the term freshmen anymore, uh. but sophomores. I am not trying to put pressure on you, but I do want to make you aware that here are the ABA required disclosures, do with it what you may, but choose your major wisely, assess aptitudes, go after what you're passionate about. But but if you've got one job while you're at undergraduate, in addition to enjoying yourself and making lifelong friends and all the fun things you came here to do and making phenomenal relationships with faculty, et cetera, that are going to last a lifetime, handle the classroom. Please, please, please handle the classroom. Yeah. Then we'll take on the LSAT. Once we have that piece, which is going to take us a lot longer to prepare than you would think, I would say if I can, and there are always exceptions to the rule. You know, my husband's a statistician. He's a, deals in the area of extreme value theory, and mm. he's a pain in the rear because he can take the GRE, the LSAT, and get perfect scores and not ever study for it. But his brain looks for patterns for a living. Most of us don't do that, right? Like everyone is a little bit different. Um, but what I will say, most of my students um, are going to need four, five months probably to pull off in the LSAT materials 
to pull off a good, strong first, maybe second attempt at a good score. Attempt, yeah. And what we always say is, okay, you've been taking practice tests. You've been taking timed practice tests. You know what your practice tests, by the way, those practice tests are all real LSAT tests in their day. So, you know, it's not like there's any trick to it. You take that test under time conditions, you figure out your score. Well, that would have been your score on that day. Okay, so you know what your current level is based on your practice test scores, then, okay, do you want to take the official test? Are you ready to take the official test? If those are your practice test scores, are you ready? And then on any given one one trial, right? It's just one flip of a coin. Well, it could be heads, could be tails. Um, and heads might be a good day for you. Tails might be a bad day for you. Well, if you score poorly relative to your own practice tests, then surely we have to plan on taking it again. Yes, that's typically the advice we're giving them. Yeah. W- without a doubt. So then that, so, it's like you need to plan, you know, you can To plan take for it two, three times. Minimum. At, like you at should least. At least have that plan. Yeah. It's like, okay, I, I'm always going to have at least one backup. Yeah. So by the, and that's true, even when you're taking it for a third time, you should still have another backup, right? If, if we get down that far down the road, then you need to be open to the possibility that like, Hey, maybe three isn't going to be my final attempt. You know, I, I don't know exactly the timeline that access Lex has their Lex fellows on, um, the fellows that they were it's talking about that I think compressed. are citing. So I will say that more and more of the pipeline programs, and we are seeing a growth in pipeline programs as a result and a reaction to um, SCOTUS, right? Which is great, right? We want it. But I am seeing more and more of them build it around a two-year curriculum rather than one and that the, you're going to need all two years, right? One makes absolutely uh, no uh, sense. Well, Uh, you you don't have enough... uh, uh, students keep uh, it's the same thing where where students will say no I've got to matriculate directly and I say why okay let's get your parents in on <laughs> this let's talk about pros and cons yeah um but understand we're releasing then your transcript because I do a, a we do a summer application workshop series where we'll work through all the pieces throughout the summer because you know typically they've got a little bit more opportunity um you know over a lunch hour or something at a as a job or internship mm-hmm. than they'll have with you can never, ever find a time when there's not a class conflict. It's it's <laughs> right. impossible to get all your students on your campus together at one place in one time. Right. It is absolutely impossible. So the summer, we have a better opportunity to slowly work through a piece at a time, all of the application components, and it's a little bit more relaxed and we can just knock out one thing at a time as, yeah. as we, you know, kind of getting some of the uh, you know, CNF uh, uh, documents together so that we're ready for any of the character and fitness questionnaires that are coming. You know, we're, we're collecting DMV records and, you know, the, we just do it leisurely over the summer. We're thinking about themes. We're thinking about why, you know, you want to live in certain regions where we're collecting letters of recommendation, where we're releasing transcripts, et cetera. But if you're a student matriculating directly through, you're releasing your transcript after junior year. That probably means that senior. Now we might supplement it after your fall of senior year, but we're probably releasing so that the we can collect all the transcripts from dual enrollment, high school, undergraduate, maybe some study abroad, depending on the scenario, uh, to so that we've got the LSAC calculated GPA in play as one of the two data points to build a school list. 
Um, and and <laughs> right. so, um, you know, we're, we're having to, to move all of that along. And a lot of my students say, but wait, I waited till senior year to take any of the fun classes. I had to take all the general education requirements and then I switched my major. You know, it's going to be senior year before so I get some of those. you're applying with a lower GPA than you would get if you had taken the gap year. And and it is it is very and I I do have students who make a good argument as to the fact that they are ready. This is purposeful. They've collected the information, and I'm going to support them. But overwhelmingly, students are going to at least need the application year with me while bringing in some income yeah. to offset some of those startup costs at law school. Yeah. Um. And 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 that's at a minimum. Yeah. Maya, I've already taken way more of your time than I think you were probably <laughs> planning on. Um, can I ask you one just, uh, well, maybe one or two rapid fire questions and then we'll wrap Please. it up. Okay. LSAT alternatives like GRE and JD Next, are these good options or should applicants stick to the LSAT? Um, the majority of students that I am supporting in an application cycle are typically taking the LSAT. Uh, there are many reasons there. Um, I have had students apply on a GRE and do incredibly well and have placed at phenomenal institutions. So for the right student who already has a rock and roll GRE in hand and knows that every school they will be applying to admits on a GRE, there could be a scenario that I agree with their assessment. More commonly, students are taking the LSAT, taking the GRE, not talking to their pre-law advisors and then thinking they get to pick and choose. That is incorrect. Please know that if you have LSATs and GREs, right, anything in the last five years, five times in, in, in your five-year period, so on that five-year report, you are going to have to report every LSAT you have taken it is the high score that matters for reporting purposes, but yep. you are going to have to report every score. And some schools may even ask you for additional information past that. Um, I hope they don't. And when I see it on applications, I've been calling the schools and asking them to please, please remove those questions. But at the very least, you know that they are going to ask that you are going to have to report everything for the last five years. So um, the the slight caveat to GRE is that you have a more limited group of schools, right? It's not going to open you up to application to all nearly 200. Um, and so that would need to work for you. I also, um, you are going to need to talk to every school on your list and confirm that merit aid is extended to GRE applicants. And you need to take that affirmative step or work with your pre-law advisor to collect that information. Because they might be giving merit aid in order to boost their LSAT median. They might not because be interested in Because it's double GRE digits. Stats. Typically, if you look at the 509s, so if you look at the 509s for a Georgetown or one of these, you know, large schools that we know has got a disproportionately high number of, of um, joint degree candidates. You are going to see the uh, on the 509 reports, the uh, quant, the verbal, and the writing scores listed for GRE candidates because they're in excess of that 12 uh, that they seated in their class this past year. But you will see, I think the numbers were almost higher a couple of years ago when the option first became available than it even is now. Um, because if you don't seat that sufficient number, even though behind the scenes the law schools have to report it, it's not even going to hit the 509s. So it's very hard to for you as a candidate to determine your level of competition if we don't have that information on the 509s. So 
Uh, the other um, difficulty for pre-law advisors, LSAC does a wonderful job of each of the eight typically administrations in a year. Uh, when score release comes out the following day, the designated pre-law advisor at their home institution gets a report of all the scores for the students who have opted in to share. That we use in advising our students. Some of our students don't like to come to us and report lower than yeah. um, expected test scores. And I get it, right? Like, I completely get it. Yeah. I am never here to judge you. I'm here to support you. But I need accurate information yeah. to do so, even if it is a difficult, it's difficult conversation to have. Know that that is more so you're going to need your pre-laws advisors support in those scenarios and your LSAT please, teacher please, support by the way and <laughs> please yeah, tell your without LSAT a doubt teacher, please you know because yeah. if you're not giving accurate scores if you're not yeah. reporting accurate data we we're we're not giving you good um yeah. advice at all the um jd next is interesting um i like the fact that students have options um i would love right again we want there are some students, many of the undergraduate institutions have gone test optional, and there's just some students that for whatever reason have this barrier in their head about taking multiple choice tests or whatever it is that they have built up, whether it exists or not, it exists in their brain. Um, and so to have this option where you could take a 10 weeks contracts course and take an exam at the end and be able to showcase your ability to convey that information in another format I love options. At this moment in time, um, uh, JD Next, of course, they just hired a psychometrician this past, you know, in the past month or so to start putting some of those data pieces together so that they can get materials to the ABA, uh, who's awaiting comment right now to determine the valid and reliable test. Um, and, and so it is evolving. We are all continuing to watch um, I am not currently working with any students who are executing that option because it really is typically only in a handful of pilot schools at this point in time. Uh, but before I recommended students take that option, we would have to talk to the schools about are they going to admit, well, one, the ABA has to collect data and, and make sure that everything is in play. And now over a quarter of schools have uh, applied and received variances. So it is something we as pre-law advisors are watching, no doubt. Um, but there are additional uh, data uh, pieces that need to be collected um, before we can properly and uh, accurately advise our, our students. We need to find out how is the is the law school going to admit on this as a standalone test? Is it going to be uh, a secondary test to an LSAT that's on file? And therefore, is what is the value added in having this secondary measure if, again, Meridaid is going to be so heavily attached to an LSAT yeah. score? That is something, you know, we're all uh, trying to figure out. So I, I love that students, I, I hope that, again, they continue to have lots of options so that we can um, uh, get great students to law schools who will be phenomenal attorneys. Uh, but at this moment in time, I think the law schools are collecting information. The ABA is collecting data and everything that they'll get from the psychometrician yeah. who's now onboarded. And um, the law schools will have to fill up, figure out their reporting process and a lot of other things in the implementation stage before we're willing to tell a student, don't take certain tests and do this other one we just don't have enough data at this point, no. but continuing to observe and I'm all for having as many options as possible to get as many students to law school that will be rockstar attorneys. 
Any other big changes in the landscape of law school admissions oh, or anything else I'm forgetting to tell? I to want to you? add one piece to your students who are applying, um, who are who maybe are going to take the exam in, in spring or summer as yeah. they are prepping for this next cycle, likely. Yeah. Um, so several of the law schools have mentioned to us, and this came up at AALS in January, that with the rise of AI in all of our industries, um, the students should treat the LSAT writing seriously. If you remember back when I took the LSAT many, many years ago, um, it was a handwritten, uh, even I think my bars were handwritten. That's how old I am. But um, while they were handwritten, chicken scratch, the law schools, it wasn't worth their time. Now that they are typed, professional written pieces that sh- demonstrate your you as an individual in a closed arena's ability to write under a timed scenario, some of the law schools have indicated that they will actually start their review of your application with the LSAT writing. Any big names? Bef- um, I, I just, uh, it was just mentioned generally, um, where they, cause they want to see how you convey thoughts and yeah. sort thoughts together. I could see doing that. I mean, I could just see yeah. myself with a huge stack of those LSAT writing and I would be basically just good, bad. <laughs> and well, like- and more so they're looking at how much help have you had in the rest of your file? Because you've got students who do pay to get people to oh, of course. review yes. multiple statements yeah. and et cetera like that, that may not be there. Uh, or you have students using AI. And this is where this is my this is my uh, word of caution to your students. Some of the law schools say in their instructions, use AI, we don't care. And, and then the student can do whatever they want for that law school application. However, and this is a big however, some of the law schools state in their instructions that you are prohibited from using any forms of AI in the preparation and development of your statements. Can you use Grammarly? I don't know, right? Like that's what we're all debating right now. But understand that you are filing a certification that says you've complied with their instructions. So you need to read the instructions carefully And it may be that that AI, whatever prepared statement that you use for schools A, B, and C needs to be shredded and you need to start over and narrowly tailor and write a more closed statement for these different schools that prohibit you from using any form of AI because you could be running into character and fitness violations. And don't blow off LSAT writing these days because people might actually read it. I do want to say, though, LSAT writing is the easiest thing to prepare for, and it shouldn't take anybody more than like and no, 10 it minutes should, to prepare it. It should not slow anyone down. No, so you have easy. access to it eight times before you've taken your test. You only have to take it once. Um, it's nothing to worry about. It's so but formulaic. It's please the easiest actually thing respond write. to the prompt right. because the law schools are more likely right now to read it to get a feel for your writing style than they have in the past. And that Makes would sense. just be something that students should be be aware of. Makes sense. Yeah. And because again, to go somebody like me, I I would read I, I wouldn't read the whole thing. I would read like the first two sentences and I can tell 
it, you're you're either writing clearly or you're not. <laughs> and so and if, you can compare that writing style with the personal to statement. To their personal the statement, if I wasn't and sure. And you can get yeah. a feel for whether yeah. what is a good, strong statement. Yeah. It is authentic. It is genuine. It is honest. And and the writing might give me a, a small window into yeah. the, whether that's in case the fact. Um, one more question, and then I really am going to let you go. But this is going to burn if I don't if I don't ask you, I'm going to I'm going to regret it. So, what do you say to students who want to talk about their uh, ADD on their application documents? I say if you a personal statement, and again, call it what you may, it's going to be called is not the place for it. Would you so, want it anywhere in the application? Um, it is going to depend on the student. Understand that if you disclose that information, it is going into a record. It's going to then get delivered to the bar. Um, this is information. Your medical record is information that went through lawsuits for you to protect, and it is yours, and you should think about, is this something you want to share broadly? Because it does become a part of your record. So I have my students think about this consideration. So I think the question is, is it necessary? Um, and then we talk through if in the personal statement, it should be positive. I will like yeah. often looking forward and I want to be really excited about that. If there is an addendum that needs to be added because there are holes in the record, there are something's wrong. It does. Mm -hmm. It's not adding up the student I'm seeing in the rest of this application, what's going on with these grades during this time period before they got medicated or whatever. Th there may be a legitimate reason that in an, a clean and concise addendum, you may want to highlight it. But I also caution students, it shouldn't be in the personal statement. That's not the place yeah. for it. Unless well, for, for students to talk about even whether it be mental health, whether it be disabilities or anything in the, the personal statement, it better be critical to your reason for going to law school. There better be one heck of a story there. Otherwise, the only place that I would even consider placing any of those materials would be an addendum. And you would have to convince me that it is necessary to strengthen your application to even place it there. And at this point in time, a lot of my students don't aren't, aren't sufficiently convincing for us to even place it there. Because think about, you've just read this incredible personal statement. Yeah. You've looked at this fantastic student and you've talked about why they want to go to this law school. And then you get down to the tail end, which is an addendum. And now we're highlighting a what could be a perceived weakness. Well, because aren't um, you or, also telling the reader that you could have gotten accommodations on the LSAT? Now, so I would never disclose that information. What I will tell students is as you are going and visiting your law schools, I if, if I'm an individual who knows that accommodations is going to be critical to my ability to thrive at law school, I am making sure that that is part of when I'm after I've been accepted and that they have a fantastic office Before of say yes. student support to make sure that the the necessary personnel yeah. and support is there for me to succeed. So that is a factor in my admissions decision. But I don't you that is protected information. I wouldn't disclose any of that. That's none of the law school's business in the admissions uh, piece. 
What do you say to students who, so there's a question that says, please explain if you improved your LSAT by 10 points. And, and the student wants to respond with, oh, well, I wasn't accommodated the first time I took it, but I was accommodated the next time I took it. I would ask the question of, is it an optional statement or is it a required statement? And I, if it is required, I think you answer honestly and just um, to the extent, I mean, you should be answering all questions honestly in the application, but I mean, you could say um, additional factors led to my ability to succeed in the second test. I mean, uh, 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 I had students who thought a proctoring center would be a perfect fit for them until they got to sure. the proctoring center and realized that the person on their right 30 minutes after they started was starting the GRE and the person to their left was starting the MCAT and the proctor was going to ask them 14 times in the middle of the test whether they needed additional scratch paper and they just left in tears. Um, now that person then went and took the test at a later scenario and they did it on their own in a private room that was authorized and their proctor came back after the half time. And, you know, if schools are requiring you because they need context as well, what is yeah. a legitimate score? How do I tell? I, I think you answer honestly, but you don't have to over disclose. Well, you can answer honestly without disclosing 100% of the information that might be relevant to the answer, right? I mean, the real answer might be, yeah, I needed to get these accommodations. I was stupid for taking it without accommodations. Now I have accommodations and I can do better. Um, but you still don't, ha you still could answer the question with, I thought I could do better, so I took it and, again. And some of my students have no problem disclosing that information, right? Like so, everyone's a little different. I just need, I just want the students to know that that's, that's their private record and they they don't have to disclose it if, if they don't Aren't you want worried, to, though, so. that the schools will then discriminate against them based on that information? I mean... Yeah. I, I, well, I worry about, uh, does, uh, is it going to raise a red flag for their ability to succeed on the bar exam uh, where they may or may not get the same accommodations right. Right. in meeting deadlines in the workplace and they're concerned right. about that, which is why I, I typically tell students protect any information that's yours to be protected because you're not required to disclose it. There's been many lawsuits that have established that right as yours. Now there used to be um, an asterisk on your record. Then now there's no asterisk on your record so, until you, I see students all the time who are, they're just on the verge of disclosing that stuff where it's like, but. So talk, just walk through the concerns with them. Um, yeah. Give them the, 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 it is their application. Uh, highlight your concerns you know, I, I also, when a student's really concerned, I will call, I will have the student in here. I won't disclose the student's name. I'll call a school on uh, and let the school know that I have a student sitting with me. I don't want to, you know, I'm going to protect their identity, but I, we have a general question for you. Please, okay. you know, give us advice. So you can also use hmm. your pre-law advisors to help you collect information directly from the law schools when you won't, don't want to disclose your identity. That could be helpful in making an informed decision. Please, I think my greatest frustration is a lot of students don't use their pre-law advisors or use them so late in the process. Yeah. We could have really been far more helpful had we connected at an earlier stage. Yeah. Um, and, and so if, if you have resources there, um, if your tuition has already paid for you to have these resources there, please, please, please connect with them and use them so that you can at least walk through some of these concerns and considerations uh, with someone before you, you know, 
hand over information you didn't realize you don't have to. Perfect place to wrap it up. Maya Russell is the pre-law advisor at Furman University. She's also the chair of the pre-law advisor national council, which we call Plank and a bunch of other things. I hope to see you, Maya, in uh, New Orleans later this year. Yes. For that Plank conference. And um, how do people reach out to you if they want to reach out? Yeah, so uh, plank.org, if anyone is, uh, whether they be vendors, whether they be pre-law advisors, whether they be um, law school admissions, uh, we have plenty of information on the Quadrennial Conference there. Obviously, all of our board, if you look at our board, I'm currently chair and all my information is there. Or if you just do a search for Furman and pre-law advisor, uh, Maya Russell is the first name that pops up and you'll have all my information there. No problem. I have a strange Australian pronunciation of my name. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know that that was an Australian thing, huh? Maya. Yeah, Yeah, it's like the month of May. But in any case, um, uh, yes, uh, you can uh, shoot me an email and um, uh, if you have uh, want to chat, I can talk law school admissions and considerations <laughs> all day every day and you are a good talker it's true me too i'm in a fortunate position where i get paid to do this so let's 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 connect i'm i'm excited to hear from you lovely thank you very much uh maya i've learned a lot hope to have you back um i'm gonna have to start saving up a list of questions for you and um <laughs> just I will have you back on periodically if you're game to answer. Fabulous. And we will see you in New Orleans in June. I'm excited. Fantastic. Great. Thank you for your time today. Thank (laughs) you. Bye. All right. Word of the week. We have a submission here from Bryce. Yeah. The subject is word of the week elucidation. Hi, Ben and Nathan. I was reading the structure of scientific revolutions by Thomas Kuhn. Hmm. Great book says Bryce. And came across a candidate for word of the week. What beliefs about the stars, for example, does he, the scientist, bring to the study of chemistry or electricity? This is quoting the book. And what aspects of the complex phenomenon that then results strike him as particularly relevant to the elucidation of the nature of chemical change or of electrical affinity? Okay. Merriam-Webster defines elucidate as to make lucid, especially by explanation or analysis. Bryce then writes, thank you for instilling the habit of defining words while I read. It makes a big difference. Bryce, P.S. I have a 172 LSAT on record and I'm still in school with a 4.0 in physics. I'm getting greedy and pushing for a higher score on the June test when I'm on break for the summer. Thank you for the help to get here and the motivation to keep going. Beautiful. Yeah, that's uh, that's going to be a successful law school application. For sure. Yeah. And, you know, it doesn't need to force in an early application. You, you've got your 172 and your 4.0. I mean, that's the type of that's the type of student who's going to get one of those full ride offers. Yeah. And so that's the part that makes me so anxious about the Access Lex folks that we were talking about at the top of the show. Because I just think those are the people who are going to be lined up to pay for Bryce's education. They're going to borrow. They're going to pay full price. Bryce is going to breeze in for free. Yep. And yeah, he's going to graduate with no debt and they're going to graduate with, oh, a couple hundred thousand in debt. That's our goal to (laughs) elucidate what's happening here. By the way, on this word, the definition says to make lucid. 
for some people, they may have to look up the word lucid. Lucid means clear. And elucidate, to elucidate something means to make it clear, to make it something that people can understand. Yeah, it's got a root in the same thing as like, it's related to light, right? Because mm-hmm. it's like lumen. Lucid, yeah, I think, yeah. Lucid to me, I, you can think of, yeah, exactly, like light. You can see mm-hmm. through. Mm-hmm. Okay. In college, I read a book about lucid dreaming. Yeah. Techniques that you could try to do to, to, for, to, to enable you yourself, yourself to be conscious while you're dreaming. Have you done that? I tried when I was in college. I don't think I ever had any success. I have had yeah. lucid dreams from time to time. Really? Wow. Yeah, just it, normally it, it's just like, have you ever had a dream where you could fly? Nah. Well, yeah, but I don't yeah. think, I thought the point of lucid dreaming was that you control or you have a lot more conscious. Um, yeah. 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 Autonomy. And so that's how I have experienced it when I have, when I have experienced it in very limited circumstances. It's been like, oh, wow, I'm dreaming. Oh, I could fly. Cool. And yeah. then take off flying and then wake up. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Thank you, Bryce. I put one on here last night. I was reading, um, I am reading a cool book about the, well, it's during Gar- President Garfield's administration and he's about to get murdered by this dude, Charles Guiteau. Okay. G U I T E A U. Guiteau, okay. I would Guiteau. say. Um, there was a quote from a Senator, John Logan, Senator from Illinois, who said, I thought there was some derangement of his mental organization. I'm, I'm marveling throughout the book at how, um, well-spoken everybody seems to be back in the day. Yeah. Like the, all these senators and stuff, they had such amazing vocabularies. Like when I read about, I was just reading recently a biography or history and I was talking about Taft and like every former president that I've read about prior to, you know, the fifties or whatever. Yeah. They're all, they were all like so educated and so well-spoken. And, hmm. um, anyway, I thought there was some derangement of his mental organization. Hmm. What do you think that might mean? It sounds like messed up, right? Derangement sounds like disorganized or, yeah, jacked. Yeah, I looked it up and um, the, so it's a, there's a special usage of this word because I had never heard it as an, I'd never heard derange, I guess just that word, derangement. It's a noun, right? You've heard deranged, like someone is. I've heard deranged as an adjective. Yeah but I had never heard derangement of mental organization. And so what derangement there, yeah, that's a noun. Mm -hmm. Anyway, when I looked it up, there's a special usage of derangement to throw something into confusion or to cause to act irregularly. Mm. And yeah, this dude was crazy. This Gato guy, Mm. he was hanging out at the white house (laughs) It used to be so amazingly easy to get close to the president. Yeah. It was just a house, right? People come and walk on up. It was like everyone was just allowed to just cruise right into the White House and ask for an appointment with the president. Now, they yeah. didn't have to give you an appointment with the president, and they never yeah. did give Gateau a pre- an appointment with the president. But he was hanging out in the White House, like using the White House stationery 
Mm. he also would go to fancy hotels and like sit in their lobby for hours on end and use their stationery. And he was like pretending like he was staying at the hotel. Then he was pretending that he was writing letters from the White House. He was like saying that he has references from the senator or references from the president himself. Or he, he just had this derangement of his mental organization that wow. caused him to think that he was like a critical person. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's really kind of a cool story. Also, the president, uh, President uh, Garfield, is like leaving the White House to go walk over to the secretary of state's house yeah. in the evening, just yeah. cruises out of the white house by himself, walks over yeah. to the house of the secretary of state, picks up the secretary of state. The two of them go cruising around the neighborhood, just walking around. Yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah. So I, he's about to get blasted by this crazy guy. And uh, I guess that Wait, was what happened. Of, so then he, did he get, I'm not there yet. Don't spoil it for me, but I'm pretty I sure that Garfield no. is one of our presidents who got shot. It was right oh, after really? Lincoln, mm. by the way. And oh, then, yeah, it's like it's still Someone's in, <laughs> Because the because um, Lincoln's son, his only son that survived, something Todd Lincoln, I forget Robert Todd Lincoln, maybe, um, is Lincoln's son is in the book. Okay, but anyway, yeah, this uh, this next president is about to get blasted. Okay. We've had a lot of presidents get shot. We have. I think there's at least four. Yeah, I was just I was just listening to an episode about um, Reagan getting shot. Yep, which I remember that. that. Which I didn't realize that his, maybe it was his, not his press secretary, somebody. Baker, yeah. Brady, right? Brady, Brady, yeah, Brady. Brady, yeah. and that led to the Brady Act. Um, yep. Fascinating. Anyways, who are the other people? We got Lincoln. I remember my neighbor. I, it, this was like, it was in the early 80s, right? When Reagan yeah. got shot in his first yeah. term. Yeah, he was, it was uh, March. So it was like two months in. Oh, okay. Yeah. I remember. And the guy was trying to, he was trying to impress Jodie Foster. Like what? What (laughs) What's wrong with people? I think it's pretty consistent that the people who go ahead and shoot the president are pretty nuts. I mean, they they have a derangement of mental organization. It doesn't work out the way they think it's going to work out. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So we got Reagan who was shot Lincoln, who was shot Garfield, Mm. who I'm pretty sure is about to get shot. Okay. Wait, I had one more. Oh, well, Kennedy. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> we're, we're totally blank. For like, I was like, it's so obvious. Why can't I think of it now? Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. The most famous one was yeah. Kennedy. Yeah. So, yeah, that's at least four out of our 40 something presidents who have gotten shot. Yep. High risk occupation. Okay. All right. That's it for Word of the Week. Um, you can be LSAT famous. Please ask questions or share news with us at LSAT Demon. I want to uh, thank. Maya Russell, one more time for coming on the show. Uh, fabulous guest. Uh, hope our listeners learned a lot from that conversation. If anybody has questions about the LSAT Demon, you can email help at lsatdemon.com. Please check out our other podcast, LSAT Demon Daily, and subscribe to us on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. That was episode 440 of the Thinking LSAT Podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school.